I would like to take a moment to make my own personal announcement of celebration that we have, by virtue of the hard work of the Organ and Outreach Task Force Committee, received 90% of our total needed amount through a very quiet campaign, enough to sign the contract this afternoon for our new organ. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. While our organ may sound good enough for you, it's basically uh, a six-engine car working on two cylinders. Excuse me, a six-cylinder car working on two cylinders. It gets us where we're going, but it's an effort to get us there. You will tell the difference immediately when that new organ is installed. It will be a 13- to 16-month process. We will not be out of music during the sanctuary. I'm not even sure we'll be out of the sanctuary. They will give us a loner organ, an electronic organ to use, as well as piano during this process. And finally, many of you in the congregation have asked if you can participate in this project. And yes, you will have that opportunity at the right time to participate uh, through uh, helping to pay for the last 10% of the organ, as well as the outreach uh, program. Thank you for this congregation. It's been in a three and a half year process of discernment and hard work. Uh, and also, again, want to thank the people behind the scenes for their stepping up to help us make this happen. This morning's text comes to us in the Gospel of John, which is known for its poetic and narrative uh, uh, way of bringing to us the Gospel. It's less uh, like the synoptics, as I said, and uh, more narrative-based. It it gives us story after story of Jesus' personal interaction with those who are not considered insiders, yet who Jesus, in this interaction with, converts to understanding in a new way who they were as a child of God as well as who Jesus is. This is no exception. It's the story of the Samaritan woman at the well in the fourth chapter beginning uh, in the beginning of that chapter. I will be reading it from the message version. Uh, It's probably best if you just listen along as I'll be skipping through some of the verses themselves. The setting is that Jesus is on his way from Judea back to Galilee from the south up to the north of Israel and to get there the easiest path was to go through uh, Samaria. He didn't have to, but he chose to for not only geographical reasons, but I think also reasons of theology. And on his way, he passes through uh, this town of what's really Shechem, and he is worn out by his trip, and so he sits down at Jacob's well. It was about noon. Then a woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. And Jesus said, Would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch. The Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, How come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the generosity of God 
and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh living water. The woman said, Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep, so how are you going to get this living water? Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again and again. But anyone who drinks the water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be an artesian spring within gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty and won't have to come back to this well again. He said, Go call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she said. That's nicely put, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Then after some theological conversation about who worships how correctly, whether the Samaritans or the Jews, and in which temple Jesus says that what really matters is not so much how we worship, but with what part of ourselves, in spirit and truth, he says. And then he reveals to her that he is the Messiah, the one that she, the Samaritans, and the Jews have been waiting for. And then the story picks up again. After this conversation, just then his disciples came back and they were shocked. They couldn't believe that he was talking with that kind of woman. No one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. The woman took the hint and left. In her confusion, she left her water pot. Back in the village, she told the people, come, come and see a man who knew all about the things I did and who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they all went out to see for themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever been left out? Maybe not invited to a party everyone else was attending. Maybe left alone to eat in the lunchroom, no one would sit next to you, maybe the last chosen on the playground because you were a terrible athlete, maybe for some reason you were looked at as not existing, you were basically invisible. Most of us have had some experience like that, but there are many people who have almost every experience like that. I was born with white privilege in the South from a basically middle class, upper middle class family with three siblings. Both my parents had a college education. I was athletic. I was extroverted. Uh, I had way more gifts than I really expected or deserved simply by virtue of luck and genetics. 
from that experience, I have had a few times when I felt left out, but I really have been one of the insiders most of my life. And I'm saying that to you because I want you to hear that in juxtaposition to this Samaritan woman who was completely the opposite. First, she was a woman, and in those days, women had no power. They were either owned by their father or they were owned by their husband. And if their husband died, they were basically owned by their son, if they had one, without which they were a widow having no power at all. It was that kind of patriarchal world. Plus, she was a Samaritan. Samaritans were heretics and hated by the Jews. They worshipped in a different way, in a different temple, They were called half-breeds, that ugly name we know in our own country. Basically, to say someone was a Samaritan would be like when I was in Alabama, someone using the N-word. It was ugly. She's a woman, and she's a Samaritan, and she's alone. At noon, she comes to fill her, well, her water bucket with, with water at the well. No one filled their bucket at noon. That was the hot time of the day. All the women in the village would fill their bucket in the morning. They would come together as a group. This woman has been shunned. We learn later, probably because she's had five husbands and lives now with someone who is not her husband. I'm sure that was most of it, but whatever the reason, she's completely alone, and Jesus is sitting there, and he sees her walk to the well, and he addresses her. In those days, men never addressed women in public. It was a complete social scandal, and especially a Jew never addresses a Samaritan, And she, out of some deep sense of strength, has enough sense of self to reply when Jesus asks her for a cup uh, of water, a drink of water. She says to him, you're a Jew, and you're asking me for water. And Jesus says in response, yes, in fact, if you knew who I was, then you would know that the waters I offer you are fresh living waters. Now, Jesus is always talking in John's gospel in double entendre, double meanings. Remember, Nicodemus was talking about being born again. He never could quite figure out what that meant since he was an old man. And in this case, Jesus is talking about water, capital W-A-T-E-R, and she's hearing water little case W-A-T-E-R, literally water. She says to him, water, you don't even have a bucket to draw from the well. How are you going to give me water? And Jesus responds back. The water from this well will not quench your thirst, but the water that I give you will quench your thirst forever and ever, for it will be like an artesian well gushing forth with the flowing streams of life. 
Okay, she says, then give me that water so I don't have to keep coming back to the well. She's still not getting it. Jesus then asks her to go find her husband intuitively, or however Jesus knew, that that question would bring him into a deeper, more intimate, and vulnerable relationship with her. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, I know, you've had five. For whatever reason, she could have been divorced. In those days, it was hard for women to divorce men, but not so hard for men to divorce women. Or she could have been widowed. The story doesn't care to tell us. She's had five husbands. And even now, Jesus says, the man you're with isn't your husband. Feeling completely vulnerable and exposed, she changes the subject and starts talking about worship liturgy. Is the way we worship on the mountain in Samaria the same as the way you worship on the mount at Jerusalem? Is our worship as good as yours? Help me understand that. And Jesus goes along, and they have this theological, liturgical conversation about the difference between traditional and contemporary worship style, or whatever the question was. And, and Jesus doesn't continue to like probe her. He just goes along with her in relationship. But what Jesus says to her should be true for all of us, whether Christian, Jew, or Muslim, Hindu, or Baha'i. What matters, Jesus said, is whether you worship God in spirit, that is your true essence, and in truth. In spirit and in truth. Just then, the disciples show up, look at each other and ask, what is he doing talking to that woman? You could see it written all over their faces. Embarrassed and exposed, she runs off. Yet not without enthusiasm. She makes her way back to the village, forgetting her water bucket, and instead begins to proclaim to all those gathered, just think what she must have been like, once shunned, now so full of this living water of God in Christ, this presence of Christ's acceptance of her as a human being, so full of that, her own sense of self, that she begins to proclaim to all those who had shunned her, you're not going to believe it. I met a man who knows me inside and out. He knows everything there is to know about me, yet he still loves me. Might he be the Messiah? And they left and followed her back. She was the first real witness in John's gospel, the witness that converted others, and she did so as a Samaritan woman, married five times, living out of wedlock. It's an amazing story about the breadth and length and height and width of God's grace to open those arms and embrace every single one of us with love and grace. And inasmuch as we call ourselves followers of Jesus, it's our calling too. 
This morning we will ordain our new officers, our elders, and our deacons, and we will confirm our, uh, our uh, trustees. And my charge to you as new officers is the same as my charge to this whole congregation, for we are all called to be priests to each other. This is our charge. We are to be like Jesus was to all of the people in the world who feel like they are outsiders. Regardless of race or gender or sexuality or age or nationality or politics or ideology. We are to be that presence of Christ opening ourselves up in intimate, vulnerable relationship with them so that we may be for them in some way the living waters of God's grace. Wherever we are, in our jobs, in our families, on the playground, and yes, even in our cars. And that the mission of this church, you see, is to be just that, to be that living water of God that brings reconciliation when there is brokenness and that connects those who feel disconnected and who help bridge the gaps between all those left out and those of us who feel like we are on the inside, to whom much is given, much is required. And what is required of us is just this. We're called to be the living waters of Christ to the world.